Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good morning, everyone. I apologize for that. I was getting ready to say good afternoon, good morning, and then wait, wait, I don't even know what time it was. So I looked over at the clock and realized it's morning time. Then I turned on the microphone. So so you you want to do that again? Let's do that again. Let's do this. I mean, come on. We need to get the intro. If you don't get the intro right, you're in trouble. So you ready? You, you want to try the intro again? Let's try the intro one more time. Let's do this appropriately. Let's do this properly. Let's do this correctly. Here we go. Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good morning, everyone. It is Saturday, December the 23rd, 2023. It is currently 1144 a.m. Central Time, and I am coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. It is the day before Christmas Eve. And all through the house, well, it was time to have a discussion about biblical morality, okay? All right, I know, I know, I know that the day before Christmas Eve, it's probably not like I want to have an in-depth discussion about biblical morality, and I want to deal with very uncomfortable situations, and I want to deal with very, uh, very uncomfortable subjects. I Look, I understand this is probably not the subject for today. I know I should probably be doing something else, but it's one that's just really bothering me. So we're just going to have a very frank and blunt discussion. Just warning, if you have children around, I may be talking about some things you don't necessarily want to have a conversation with them about. So you may want to put on headphones or you may want to wait until this is uploaded and listen to it at a time that is much more appropriate for you. All right. Because we're going to talk about biblical morality. Now, as Christians, we love to talk about Family values. We love to talk about biblical morality. Our, our mindset is those people out there, they don't have any biblical morality and they do this and they think this and they're sinners and they do this. But us as Christians, we have biblical morality and we are godly. And, and, and if you think about it as Christians, we do a lot of judging. Right? We do a lot of condemning this and condemning that and condemning this and condemning that. And, and they need this and they need that and they need to stop doing this and they need to stop doing that. And not only do we spend a lot of time condemning others, we spend a lot of time condemning ourselves as well, right? We look to ourselves going, why do I think this way? And why do I want this? And why do I desire this? And why did I say that? And why this? We, we spend a lot, our, our lives really as Christians just, we kind of, we kind of just, place ourselves into this world of constant morality and moral questions and ethical questions and everything is black and white, right and wrong. And you could talk about the positives that could come from that. We could talk about the negatives that can come from that. But I think sometimes we, I think, think sometimes we have a more, how can I say this? I want, I, I think sometimes we have more clarity in how we speak of morality than maybe the Bible always demonstrates. Because the Bible sometimes tells these stories that really leaves you somewhat perplexed and confused about the morality of the entire situation. 
Sometimes you're like, wait, 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 who's the good guy in this story? Wait, wait, that's biblical morality. Wait, the Bible's, they did this or they did that. Like, how is that even a good thing? How is that even a right thing? That's a horrible thing. I don't even want anyone to even know that story is even in there. Uh, but, but then I think we have a tendency sometimes as preachers, especially standing behind the pulpit, is I think sometimes these stories that I think are absolutely horrific and horrible, we almost Disneyfy them, right? We almost like hallmark them. We, 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 we so strip away the, the, the obvious like, whoa, problem. And we try to make it like it's a Disney version or a Hallmark movie. And it's like, no, no, no. Maybe we need to be more open and honest with the biblical morality. And sometimes the often confusing things we find within it. Right. I mean, we, we can, uh, I mean, I know we, we well, th- for, I'll give you just an, a good example. Remember Abram who becomes Abraham and Sarai who becomes Sarah. Remember when they're traveling and Abram's like, hey, hey, now look, when we're going to go into this land, these people, they, they, they know that you're my wife. They're going to take you. So, so, you know, or they're going to kill me. So, hey, this is what we need to do. You tell them, I'm going to tell them that you're my sister. You go along with it. And then whatever happens, happens. And well, then Sarah gets taken. Right. And you're, and, 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 but everyone's just kind of like, well, you know, it shows that Abraham a little had a little lack of faith and, you know, but hey, it all turns out because ultimately he's willing to offer his son. I mean, well, ultimately he shows great faith and it's very weird. It's like, because Abram later on shows great faith, we just kind of overlook the fact that he's like, Hey honey, look, here's the situation. This could be dangerous. So you just pretend to be my sister. And if they take you and they do things to you, well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's just the price we have to pay. It's like we we so we water that down that it doesn't really seem to have the impact that I think it we should have. In fact, it it almost makes it feel like that Sarai is kind of expendable. Like Abraham is kind of like, well, you know, or Abram. Hey, I mean, if you get taken, you get taken. You know, I'll find a wife somewhere else. You know, it's all good. It, it really feels like she's expendable, like that she's not, she's not really that significant, right? It, it's, it's, it's very, it's very troubling to me. And it's weird because we, we so like, because Abram does good things later, he does this amazing thing, willing to offer up his only son that then we just kind of then say, well, then, you know, forgive that offering up your wife, <laughs> you're putting your wife in a situation where she could be taken and, you know, well, let's just, I mean, look, come on, let's just say what it is to be sexually abused. Hey, but, hey, but that's okay because he does good things later. Now that's weird because we, we, we have this idea of biblical morality, but then we almost give Abram a pass. We may, we look at Solomon and go, Hey, he was this wise man. And look at these beautiful words he wrote in Ecclesiastes and the song of Solomon and in, you know, in, in, in Proverbs. Awesome. Well, yeah. How many wives did he have? How many concubines? And we just kind of like, well, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, nobody's perfect, but we would not, it, we will not apply that same kind of thinking. In our world today, like we look at people today, we would be like, well, you know, you know, you've got, you know, 700 concubines. I mean, that's okay. That's okay. Because you're really smart. We wouldn't do that, you know? And it's so weird. Like in some cases, we, we see things in the Bible and we would not, we don't, we, we speak in a completely different way. 
we speak in a much more morally black and white, dogmatic, assertive way, but yet in the Bible. And then we almost use a relativistic thing in the Bible. Like, well, you know, you got to understand the culture at the time. Well, wait a minute. So the culture can change the morality by that logic. Then we can look at our world and go, well, the culture today. And then does that change the morality? It just gets all confounding and confusing. And one such story in the Bible has always bothered me. That's the story of Sarai, Abram, and Hagar. That story has bothered me forever because Hagar is a slave. Okay, first of all, that's not a good thing, all right? That's not a good thing. You, we can, we can say, well, that was the culture, but that's using relativism. See, that's a relativistic approach. And then, well, we know what happens. Sarah can't have a child. So then, hey, uh, Abram, take Hagar and have a child. And I don't, there's nowhere that, I mean, I mean, just even if you want to look at the contextual historical context, she wouldn't have had to say so. She would have had no, 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 she wouldn't, it wouldn't even have mattered consent or no consent. She was property and she was used as property, which really reaches the level. I mean, I don't know if there's, I know people don't like to hear this and Christians always get mad when you say this. It's sexual assault, ladies and gentlemen, it's rape. But everybody's like, no, 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 the, the context changes it. Does the context change it? Does context ever change a woman not being able to give consent? The story has always bothered me. And it just raises this questions about biblical morality. So I'm going to play a part of a sermon that I heard about 4 a.m. this morning. I reached over, grabbed my iPad, went to the sermon, uh, Sermons 2.0 app, went to my feed and hit play. And the first one I saw, and the first one I saw was the God who sees. The God who sees. You need to look up the sermon. Um, it's by Carl... Gobel, Gobelman, G-O-B-E-L-M-A-N, Gobelman. And, uh, you should, you should listen to it for yourself. Listen to all of it. You, you may walk away with a different feeling. I walked away going, I, man, I just don't know if that's the way I would present that. I don't know. Now, I look, I, I, I don't have any great answers on the story of Abram, Hagar, and Sarai. The story bothers me to no end. But I want you to hear how they approach it. And I just want you to think about biblical morality. I mean, look, look, Lot. Just think about Lot. He's the one who offers up his daughters. When when the house is surrounded, the angels are there and the men say, hey, bring out those men that we may know them. Obviously, this is a, a very, you know, a very powerful example of almost sexual assault, right? And he's like, no, 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 don't take them. You can have my daughters and do whatever you want. What are you talking about? That is horrific. That is horrible. And then after Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed, he ends up drunk and having relations with his daughters. But yet in the New Testament, he's referred to as a righteous man. And you're like, what in the world is going on? But once again, well, we, we kind of look at it. And now sometimes we look at Lot. We don't really look at Lot as a righteous man. We look at him as kind of like, man, this guy's messed up. He's an example of what not to do. But then other people in the Bible, we kind of give a pass. I mean, you know, yeah, Solomon may have been committing adultery every time you turn around, but that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. 
that's okay. We'll, we'll still, we'll still, I let him teach us every Sunday when we're stu- reading or studying the book of Proverbs. <laughs> like, and when we read the Song of Solomon, we're like, what a beautiful love story for which woman, right? Like, so like, there, there's just a lot of issues that sometimes I don't think we're, are, it's really weird. Like, I think Christians just like, we just kind of paint it over. We make it make sense to us and we don't want to embrace the conflict, but I don't know. The Abram Hagar, the Abram Hagar and Sarai story really bothers me. It really does. It really does. So are you ready to listen to this? Now, typically when I get ready to play audio, my complaint is, hey, churches, could you record your audio at an acceptable level because it's always too quiet? And so I typically have to take the audio, then go to Audacity and then boost the audio. Well, in this particular case, they recorded it at such a high volume that it's almost distorted at times. So in this case, they go the opposite direction. So I don't even know where to put the volume. I really don't. I'm just going to kind of be messing with it. And hopefully, if it's a little too loud, you may have to turn down your volume. Um, but here we go. And we're jumping right into the middle of this. We're like, I don't know. We're like 36 minutes into this sermon. And he's uh, he's been building up this whole story with Abram and Hagar and Sarai. And uh, he's now really kind of getting into the essential part. He focused on the, he, he focused on the first part of his sermon was really Genesis. It's obviously the text is Genesis 16. If you don't know, I know I'm just assuming that everyone knows where it is. Genesis 16. And now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children. And she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. All right, so Hagar really belongs to Sarai. It's her slave, really, um, from my understanding of the of the uh, cultural context, and uh, and so he talked a little bit about this uh, that she said unto Abram, Behold, now the Lord hath uh, restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. Uh, in the sermon, he kind of compares this to Eve. Uh, during the fall, she partakes of the fruit and then gives it to Adam. And in this particular case, Sarah has taken this woman as her slave. She's taken it. And now she's like, here, uh, here, uh, Abram, partake of it. Eve said, Adam, partake of this fruit. Sarah's like, here, partake of my slave. Okay. So he kind of drew a correlation comparison there. Thought that was interesting. Thought that was interesting. But here we go. Here we go. We're just going to jump right in. He's talking about this. And when he gets, I, I may, I may interrupt this kind of like a mini sermon review, but there's one portion I'm looking for. And when we get there, hopefully it will impact. I don't know. It may not impact you. So once we get there, once I hear the part, I'm going to probably come back in. I'm probably just going to be silent for about 30 to 45 seconds. When we finally get there, we're not going to get there immediately, but when we get there and I'm hoping it, maybe, maybe you're not going to have the same emotional reaction that I had. And maybe I had the emotional reaction because it was like four in the morning. I don't know. Maybe I have a different reaction right now. We're about to find out together. So here we go. Another thing, I, I, I just thought about this, and I have it mentioned later, but you know, was, was Hagar ever consulted about this plan? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> just here, have, have my, my maid. And she's like, oh, gee, thanks for asking me. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, maybe that might be part of the reason why uh, she held her in contempt later on. But So you got these problems with Sarah's plan. It violates. 
Okay, first you can tell how distorted it is. They recorded it way at too high a volume, way at too high a volume. So I, I, all I can do is mess with it. Now, so immediately, I just want you to realize, so at the 35, 36 minute mark, he is acknowledging that Hagar gives no consent. She has no say so in this. And that maybe that explains why she later on, it says, the actual text says, uh, if I can find it, um, if I can find it where it happens, um, let's see here. Yes, um, in Genesis 16, and he went in unto Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. She despises Sarai. She despises her. Now, is she, some translate that as, oh, she's like mocking her. Hey, you can't have children, but one night with me and look what happens, right? You're, or maybe she despised her because you didn't even give me, I didn't have any say so in this and now I'm pregnant. Not with, not with a man I love, not like maybe despises her for the unwanted pregnancy, like, there's a lot of different ways of looking at that. But he, at the 36-minute mark, he's acknowledging Hagar got no consent in this. She's a slave who is given no ability to provide any consent or even input into the plan. She's just going to be used. I don't care how you try to Christianize this. I don't care how you try to Disneyfy it or Hallmark movie it. This is a messed up story. Now, but let's wait and see how he handles it from the pulpit. Because to me, I don't think we sometimes want to embrace the difficulty these these stories present to you. I don't know which stories in the Bible bothers you, but there's plenty of them that I'm just like, I just don't get it. And ever and, and other Christians are like, oh, it was just the time. Don't worry about it. Yeah, no. well, let's bring that to this time and see how you would judge it. Well, let's see what happens here. It's God's plan for marriage. It shows a lack of faith in the promises of God, and it's symbolic of God's people always looking back to Egypt, where where things are better, where things are fruitful, and in in this case, uh, literally so. Right? You know, the, the the woman who is his actual wife is barren, but the woman from Egypt is apparently not barren. And she recognizes here too. Right? Look at verse two. Sarah says to Abram. See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. So she knows enough to know that her barrenness is in some way, shape, or form at least providentially orchestrated by God. You know, she doesn't say I'm being punished by God. She just says the Lord restrained, right? It's like what Job says in the, you know, when he loses everything. Well, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? It's a recognition that for whatever reason, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Again, this is something that we see often. Uh, I've got some verses here. I'm not going to go through them all. But uh, basically, as I mentioned, all the women who are married to the men in the line of promise experience some form of barrenness. Whether it's prolonged or just a short period of time, but they all experience some form of barrenness. Again, Sarah Rebecca, Rachel, the, the wives of the three patriarchs. So he tells. 
I think that's kind of interesting. And I thought that was very well, like, I love that he pointed that out. That's interesting. Why do you think that? That the women in the line all experience some level of barrenness. Like, what is, why do you think that happens? Is that a constant, like, I mean, well, there's a lot we could do with that. But I think that that's interesting, something that may need further exploration and study. All right, but there we go. But just remember, he's already acknowledged that Hagar was not given any ability to put any input into this plan. She had no consent in this plan, right? He's already acknowledged that, right? Okay. Now, he's yet to, he doesn't want to refer to what Hagar did, what Abram does to, unto her, uh, Hagar when he goes un, unto her. He, he has avoided the word rape. And many Christians are appalled if you say that, right? It's almost, well, we don't know that. Hagar may, may have wanted that. Well, that. That's always kind of the attitude. The same thing happens with kind of when David and his ascent. Well, you know, she probably, and, and, and I, it's like, I always get nervous when we say things like that. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Women in that time, their property, and you can say, well, that's just the way it was. But yeah, but does our biblical morality change because that's the way it was? Because if, it, if biblical morality changes based off cultural, historical context, then the same could apply to our world today, right? All right, but let's continue. She tells the plan to Abram. So I got a plan. We're going to help the Lord along here. And what does Abram do? At the end of verse 2, Abram heeded the voice of Sarah, or Sarai. So it's easy, of course, to walk by sight and not by faith. That's exactly what's going on here. All right, I can't bear children. Let's see, maybe my, my Egyptian maid had, will have better luck. So Abram, here's my plan. And Abram's like, all right, <laughs> whatever, sure. Okay, let's go with the plan. Let's do the plan. Easy to walk by sight, not by faith. I that oh that that language just sent like oh like oh almost repulses me. Let's just do the plan. All right, whatever. Let's just do the plan. Let's like do you not understand what you're saying? Let's do the plan. Like that's I that's a bad choice of words in my mind. Like like that's like what are you to know? But 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 that's not the part yet. That's not the part. Let just just stay with me. All right here we go. Waiting on the Lord's timing is very difficult, right? Can I get an amen for that one? Waiting on the Lord's timing is very, very difficult. Easy in that time as you're waiting on the Lord's promise to give into temptation. Now, I want you to notice something. We have this text in front of us, right? Where something to me horrible happens and it just turns into this like morality lesson, like these spiritual lessons. Hey, don't walk by, uh, don't walk by sight, walk by faith and, and waiting for the Lord, you know, and uh, just all these like, we're just going to grab these great spiritual lessons from this story of what? And that it, it's just this is the idea that biblical we're we're going to take these moral lessons from a story, and we don't seem bothered by the story. We don't seem horrified by it, bothered by it. If if this story was in any other text, I think we would look at it going, "That's messed up." If this was in a movie, we'd be like, "This is appalling." 
But it's so weird that it comes to the Bible. He's just like, you know, well, that's just the way it was. That's just the time. And who knows? Maybe she was all happy with the plan. She's a slave. She doesn't even get to be a part of the planning. Well, maybe I need, maybe, I, maybe I'm not getting what I, what the, I feel the Lord has promised me because I need to do something. So you, you're tempted to do something. I think that's what's going on here. Maybe, you know, she's like, okay, well, the Lord has promised my husband many children. I'm obviously not the one giving him the children. Maybe I need to give him my Egyptian maid. Now, maybe, maybe I'm going to read what uh, someone has said about this text. And you may agree with this or you may strongly disagree with this. All right. The story of Hagar can be found in Genesis 16 and 21. I won't quote it in its entirety here. I'm reading from an article about this story. But all my excerpts come from these two chapters. Sarah wants children and is unable to conceive. Her reasons for wanting the baby reflect the patriarchal culture in which she lived. She suffers because an inf- uh, she suffers because an infertile woman is of little worth. Perhaps she wanted a baby to cuddle and surely she wanted an heir. It is worth remembering that Sarah herself had been a victim. Abram, fearing for his life, claimed that Sarah was his sister and she was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female slaves, female donkeys and camels. So Sarah knows that she is somewhat expendable to Abraham. So, so we can look at this. Sarai may just want this. Hey, hey, I'm, I'm going to make sure you get a child because she knows that she's of little worth. If she can't find a way to produce a child, maybe she knows she could be, who knows? She could be sold for <laughs> some, some cattle or something. Who knows that like, like there could, like even her motivation may not be one. I'm going to help God out. It may be she's trying to help herself out. I'm just throwing that out there. Again, we so read, we so read these stories. Like it's almost like sometimes as adults, we read these stories in the Bible that are very layered, complex, morally troubling, and we almost turn them into a Veggie Tales version, which is like, what is that? We, we want to purify it, right? We, we want to make it innocent. And sometimes it's it's messy and it's ugly. And I like the messy ugliness of it because the messy ugliness of it tells me that the messiness and ugliness is just as prevalent in the lives of those who believe and follow God as it is in those who are not. But okay. All right. Let, let's go back to see how he's going to say what he's going to say here. Right. Easy to give in the temptation. But note here how Abram falls into the same trap as Adam. Turn back, please, to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, of course, is the story of the fall. God plants a garden in Eden, puts Adam in there, makes Eve out of his side. Together, they are given the covenant uh, to... Tend the garden. You may eat of all the trees except for the one in the middle. And then, almost right off the bat, we see here, Satan comes in, chapter 3, verse 1. And he begins to tempt Eve. 
Notice he doesn't go for Adam. He goes for Eve. And then verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and it was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And then look at that last sentence. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And then just flip down to verse 16. Sorry, 17. So after the fall, after the curse, when God comes and begins to pronounce the judgments, verse 17, then Adam, to, then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, so on and so forth. It's almost the same language there, right? Who was responsible in the garden to guard and keep it primarily? Whose main responsibility was it? Adam's responsibility. Now, when Eve offers him the fruit of the tree that God specifically told him, don't eat from that tree, what should Adam have done? He should have, like, smacked the fruit out of her hands. Like, don't give that to me, woman. (laughs) Stop. I just told you, that's the tree we should not eat from. What does he do? He heeds the voice of his wife. What does God say to him? Because you heeded the voice of your wife. What does Abram do in chapter 16, verse 3? He heeded the voice of his wife. I'm not blaming women here. The point is is that Abram should have known. It's like, no, this is a bad plan. Now, I do love this part. I think this is a, I like the drawing the correlation. You know, Eve sees something that is good, right? Something that's pleasing, all of that. She takes it. She partakes of it. And she's like, hey, here you go, uh, Adam. You eat of it as well. And he does. Then in Genesis 16, Sarai, well, she sees her slave. And she's like, oh, this is good. This will produce what I need. Like she sees it as a positive thing, right? It's pleasant. It's good. Because if Hagar has children, in a sense, they become Sarai's children, then Sarai can be like, I did produce children for you. And then she has value because in that culture, she would have no worth and she's expendable. She could be, she could be cast aside and Abram's already proven that he's willing to put her up. Hey, 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 no, no. Yeah, go ahead and take her. She's just my sister. It's all good. Take her. Oh yeah. You want to give me some money and cattle for her? Yeah, fine. Sure. He's already treated her in an expendable way, a horrible way. So now this is Sarah like, okay, oh, hey, I got a plan. So here, in a sense, is this fruit. Here, partake of it, Abram. So the whole morality here is questionable. And again, what happens here? Hagar gives no consent. She's a slave. She's about to be used. It's a horrible story. And we don't need to Disney-fy it. Hallmark movie it or veggie tell it, right? We need to be, see it at all of its layers, complexities. And it should bother us. But let's see how he's going to handle this. We should trust the Lord here in this one. That's the proper response, right? But then how long has Abram been in the land of Canaan? Ten years. He's waiting. He's waiting. It's like, oh, well, maybe this is not a bad plan after all. The Lord does not... Okay. <laughs> I was about to say something, but I'm going to pause before I say it. Because what is one of the things that you almost always hear is a quote from the Bible that's not a quote from the Bible? The Lord helps those who help themselves, right? (laughs) 
That's, that's one, for some reason, even today, people like, oh, the Lord helps those who helps themselves. It's like, well, that's like zero places in the Bible. All right. There, how many places is that in the Bible? Zero places. Zero places in the Bible. The Lord does not help those who help themselves. Now, I'm not saying the Lord doesn't want us to work hard, right? You look at the Proverbs, you know, the, the one who works hard will be rewarded. But not when it comes to the Lord's promises. The Lord does not help those who, helps them, who help themselves. So, well, we already looked at it a little bit. But in verses 3 and 4, we see Abram consent to the plan. We already saw at the end of verse 2, Abram heeded the voice of Sarah, his wife. Then verse 3, then Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes, uh, or in her sight. So... You almost have, I, I hate to kind of do this because you don't really want to psychoanalyze the characters of the Bible because you don't really know unless the Lord tells you, but you can almost feel like Abram consents because Sarai wants children. The whole plan is that, you know, that Hagar will bear children for her, right? I mean, that's the point. And there was precedent for this back in those days, you know, this kind of custom where the servant... Uh, the children of the servant would be considered the children of, of the, uh, the actual couple. So that's why she says uh, in verse 2, I shall obtain children by her. So maybe Abram's thought is, well, happy life, happy wife, right? Happy wife, happy life, isn't that how the saying goes? <laughs> happy wife, happy life, okay? She wants children really bad. This is her plan. I guess I'll go along with it because now, I mean, oh, see, this is what, again, it's so weird. We go to these stories that are so disturbing, and it's like sometimes from the pulpit, we can't say what needs to be said. He's like, well, you know, Abram's just being like, you know, hey, happy wife, happy life. You know, I, it, this will benefit me. It'll make her happy. It's great. We Or, I, like, do, do we dare say are we not allowed to say maybe the next thing that we nobody wants to admit here? I mean, I, I, can I say it? Like I know, I know we have to Disneyfy it. I know we have to try to to try to make it all nice. But there's nothing nice about this story. Maybe he just sees it as. And I, and I know we have to be careful with what we do with the text, but if he's going to offer kind of a more, well, you know, Abram's just trying to think about his wife. Maybe Abram's thinking about himself and he's getting ready to be able to engage in a, an act with another woman. But no, 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 we can't talk about that. We can't talk about that, right? I mean, it was Abram like, man, I don't really want to do this. I don't, but you know, happy wife, happy life. It's, this is going to be horrible. But just remember, in this sermon, he's already acknowledged that Hagar gets no say in this. But even though he's acknowledged that, instead of dealing with the moral complexities that that should raise to all of us, and it should bother us tremendously, then this turns into a story of supposed, hey, here's some moral and spiritual principles that you should derive from the text. Instead of going, what do we do with this? This is 
this is disturbing. But he still hasn't gotten to the part that I heard at around 4 a.m. that I, I want. And when I, when I, whenever it happens, when I come back in, I'm just going to sit in silence for like 40 seconds because it may not have the same impact on you as it had on me. We'll see. Here we are. I'm trying to get to the part. I'm hoping I have it queued up right. Now I'm worried. I'm like, I thought it was just right, like a couple of seconds, but hopefully it's coming up soon. Here we go. Because if I don't, then I'm going to be accused of not giving her what she wants, which is children. So perhaps Abram, instead of trusting in the, God, in the promises of God, he's seeking peace at home and agrees and consents to Sarah's plan. And we mentioned this before. He's been there 10 years, 10 years of waiting, 10 years of trusting. Um, in fact, he even got a covenant, right? We saw this in chapter 15. The Lord says, I will do this thing for you. And I will make a promise that I will do this thing for you. So all of this is weighing in on him. But Abram here, we see, failed in leading his family and trusting the Lord. It was his responsibility to make sure that the family trusts in the Lord. Just like it was Adam's responsibility to keep and tend the garden and to guard that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, that's... That's good. That, 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 I mean, there's no question here that as, a, as Adam felled Eve, Abram fells Sarah, right? We could talk about the male responsibility of being a spiritual leader. All right. That, that's good. I still, once again, it just seems odd to me that this story that should bother us as Christians to no end just turns into a story about like, well, you know, this is about how, how to, how not to be a bad spiritual leader. There's, <laughs> There, I, I just, this story is so disturbing. I don't know why it doesn't disturb us more. I don't know why we're not bothered by it. And again, the, the go-to whenever I bring this up is always like, well, that's just the times. Well, again, if biblical morality is simply defined by the times, then you're saying biblical morality is relative, which then leads to lots of questions, right? Well, then how is it relative today? But all right. But let's see what he's going to do here. Let's see what he's going to do here. There's, there's this part that's coming that had an impact on me. I'm hoping it's, it's about to happen. I'm hoping it's about to happen. Here we go. Let's continue to listen. So just as Adam was responsible, uh, his sin is greater, even though it was Eve who was the first one who was tempted. Adam's sin is greater because he bears a greater responsibility. Same thing here with Abram. His sin is, in a sense, greater because he should be the one trusting in the promises of the Lord. Now, the plan works. I'm going to put works in quotes. The plan works, right? So Hagar conceives. That's what we see. Verse 4. So he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. So the plan works. Sarah's plan works. Hagar conceives. And when Hagar saw that she had conceived while her mistress was still barren, Hagar here says despise. The word in Hebrew means uh, treated her with contempt. And why do you think Hagar possibly treated her with contempt? Why do you think? Because Sarai, Hagar is Sarai's slave. Sarai takes her slave and there's no way to get around this as an object, 
as it, not as a human being, as an object given to her husband to simply use so that Sarai can get children and not feel like she is of no value. Yes, Hagar's going to despise her. She's, look, there's no way to get around it. She's used. She's abused. She's sexually assaulted. She's raped. There's no way to get around. There's no consent on her behalf. Of course she's going to, to despise Sarai. This is horrible. Here, this is horrific. This is a the story should bother us to to to, to 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 our very depths. But it's so weird that so many of these things in the Bible that biblical morality that we, we talk about biblical morality, biblical morality, but we take these stories and we just like we just just pan over them as if I don't know what we do. Let's see if he's, I'm still waiting. I'm hoping the part that I remember is about to come up. So here we go. Let's continue to listen. Um, As I said, maybe part of that is born in the fact that she wasn't consulted in any of this. It's like, well, okay, fine. But, you know, I have children and you don't. Yeah, I'm fruitful. You cannot give your husband children. So she has. Now, see, he, he mentions that Hagar doesn't. You know, well, maybe she despises her because she wasn't consulted. But then, then he kind of turns it more into, and I know this is a much more common interpretation. Well, you know, you can't have children. And look, I can. All these years with you, no children. One night with me, children. See? Or child. Huh? With a child. So, I, but it, it's, it's almost like we downplay the consent part. Let's see what else he says here. Contempt in her eyes here. Now, who's to blame in all this? Everybody, right? <laughs> right? Everyone's to blame. There's enough sin to go around here. Sarah's plan shows a lack of faith. Abram's consent shows a lack of leadership. Hagar's contempt shows a lack of respect for her mistress. That's the part that hit me. Who's to blame for this? Well, everyone. Sarai, Abram, and Hagar. Hagar's to blame in this. Because she did not show respect to her mistress. If her mistress wants her to be used, sexually assaulted and raped, well, then Hagar should have shown her respect. So Hagar is the sinner in this? Hagar is at fault in this? Now, if biblical morality can literally blame the woman who is sexually abused and make her the victim or or, or take the person who's the victim and make her somehow culpable for the sin, make her somehow wrong in it, that is beyond comprehension. I don't even know what to do with that. Who's to blame? Sarai, Abram, and Hagar, because she does not show enough respect to the woman who owns her, who then makes her have relations with her husband to produce a child for, not for Hagar, but for Sarai. You're just an instrument. You're a tool. I'm going to dehumanize you. Go in, use her. 
And then not only that, when then Sarai gets upset with the way she's treated, Abraham said unto Sarai, behold, your hand, thy maid is in your hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarah dealt hardly with her, she fled. Sarah treated her so poorly that Hagar fled. But Hagar is somehow a part of the blame here? How in the world? That is preached from a pulpit that Hagar is partially to blame. What in the world? She didn't choose to be a part of their family. She was ta- she was given to Sarah. She was taken from Egypt. She's taken from her family. She's taken from where she's from. She now has to be a servant. And then she's used sexually by the man in the family to produce a child for the woman in the family. And then she's treated horribly. But somehow, who's to blame? Well, Hagar's to blame here because she should have shown respect to the woman who took her as a slave and the woman who allowed her to be abused. Now, I don't know what is said after that point. I do not know what is said after the point in the sermon because I stopped right there and I was like, I can't believe what I just heard. I cannot believe what I just heard. I cannot believe what I just heard. Now, I'm going to play the next part just to see if he adds maybe, maybe he's going to clarify here and I'm hoping he does because then I'll feel a little bit better. But I just want to show you that when it comes to biblical morality, it is weird how sometimes we handle the text in, in these situations. But let's see. Maybe he's going to clarify this. Let's see. Everyone is at fault here. No one is not at fault here. Everyone is at sin here. Everyone has failed in this scenario. You probably don't see these things, so I'm not even sure why I'm mentioning this, but I'll mention it anyway. There's a little meme going around. In the, back in the 60s, there was a Spider-Man cartoon on TV, and there's a meme that you have like three Spider-Men, they're all pointing at each other. You know, which one is the real Spider-Man? Well, that's kind of what's going on here. It's like, who's at fault? Everyone's pointing at everyone else. And, and it's like, well, everyone's at fault. He doubles down. Everyone is at fault. Everyone is in sin. A woman who's taken from her country as a slave and is sexually abused is at fault, according to Christian biblical morality. And if if a woman who's raped despises the woman who took her and gave her to her husband, If that means a woman who's raped is supposed to show reverence to the woman who basically orchestrated the entire thing, then I don't ever want to hear Christians whine and complain about submitting to wearing a mask or whining and complaining about submitting to anything. All right, I'm going to play just a little bit more. Now, I want you to go listen to the rest of the sermon yourself. There's plenty of good things in the sermon. But this part just hit me hard, right? The name of the sermon is The God Who Sees. I want you to go listen to it all, right? And it's not even here. Look, I, to me, Christians constantly, I, I'm going to use the word Disney-fy, Hallmark-fy, VeggieTales-fy, these horrible stories in the Bible. So it, it, it's not even that I'm picking on this sermon. I, I, I just, it struck me. 
You may not think it's a big deal. I just think Christians always look back to these stories and go, well, that's just the time. Well, if that, if you were going to excuse it because that's just the times, then someone could look at you and go, well, why are you going to condemn homosexuality? That's just the times. All right, well, let's just see if he, maybe he's, maybe he's going to clarify it now. Maybe, maybe it's going to click in his head. Oh man, what am I saying? Okay. All right. And maybe he's going to, he's going to at least say something about Hagar here. We're all fallen and broken people, right? We're all fallen and broken people. Abram is a fallen, broken person. Sarah is a fallen, broken person. Hagar is a fallen, broken person. So enough blame to go around. So now what happens? Verses five. And- nope, he doesn't. He, he doesn't come back to say anything about Hagar being the victim in the story. She is a sinner. Now, she is a sinner. I got no problem acknowledging that. But in this story, she's the victim. She was taken as a slave and then used and then treated harshly by the woman who orchestrated the entire thing. Now, some people point out, I do want to acknowledge this part. Um, I think, hang on, let me see if I can find the text. A lot of people point to this. Hang on, let me see if I can find it. I know, I think I know which chapter is in. I think, is it, uh, where is it? Let me see if I can find it. Give me one second. Uh, no, that's not there. Okay, it's not in that chapter. Okay, here we go. Okay, yes. All right. Because some people say, some people try to try to try to kind of Disneyfy the story. Well, 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 no, 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 no. No, Hagar was Abram's wife. Well, here's here's according to one source. Hagar is properly considered a concubine of Abraham's, although the Bible does call her a wife of Abram in Genesis 16. Three. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. A wife and a concubine held distinct roles in a family, but a concubine was still considered a wife of sorts. Hagar had been Sarah's servant, but she was raised in status to be second wife to Abraham. The action was required for Abraham to have a child with Hagar, but it did not place Hagar in par with Sarah. Hagar remained a secondary wife, a slave wife as it were. The words for wife and concubine are different, but the word for wife has a broad range of meanings and can be translated as woman, wife, or female. The word was not always used with precision. That's why Genesis 16.3, both Sarah and Hagar are called a wife of Abraham using different forms of the same Hebrew word. The broad definition of the word in question means to have, uh, we have to use context clues for more precisely to define it. In Hagar's case, her status as Sarah's slave means that she was a wife of a lesser class in biblical times, there were various rankings of wife. Well, some say that uh, she had to become his wife, mainly almost like, and this is the weird biblical morality of it, because if he, that he, for him to have 
relations with her becomes his wife. So therefore he's not quote unquote, a guilty of adultery, but she would almost then, then she is then bound to him and she can't have relations with anyone else. But this is all like a, basically a contract that she's placed under. The King James just says, um, now Sarah, Abraham's wife took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian after, uh, Abraham had dwelt 10 years in the land and gave her to her husband, Abram to be his wife. There it is. It is. So the King James does the same thing. So, but it's, it's more of a con- contractual thing. Hey, now, now you have to have relations. Now you have to do it. She's not giving any consent any, in, in any of this. Some try to argue, well, see, no, 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 no. See, there was consent here. No, this is a slave being basically ma- turned into a slave wife, being turned into a forced concubine. And she's being turned into that. So then Abraham, some will argue, um, yeah, yeah, it doesn't help the situation because she's a lesser wife. She's she's just used. It's it's almost like a contractual thing to almost like see we're we're doing this in a moral way. There's nothing moral about this. It's horrible. It's a horrific thing, and she's used. And to and to blame Hagar because she she had contempt for Sarah. Why would she not have contempt? Here's Hagar, a female slave. Here's Sarai, a woman who's already been a little mistreated by her own husband. When, you know, he, he's like, hey, go tell everyone you're my sister. You know, oh, I'm, if you get taken and used, it's not my fault. So you would think Sarai would be maybe a little bit more compassionate. But no, no, no. She knows she's expendable. She knows that she's got to produce children. She, she's like, you, you're the slave. You're going to be his husband and you're going to do what a wife should do. And you're going to give me the children. Because Sarah, the children would have belonged to Sarah. Or the child would have belonged to Sarai. But somehow, in preaching, Hagar is just as much as in the wrong as everyone else. Hagar is in the wrong. Who then turns around and gets abused. How does that happen in our preaching? How does that happen, happen in our teaching? How does that happen in biblical morality? And it's so weird because we look at these biblical stories and we will, we will, we will almost jump through hoops to take away the, 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 the horribleness of it, right? But if that same scenario was to show up in our culture or in a different religion, we'd be like, that's horrible. That's horrible. Why do we not, why do we do that? So you you can think of, we've talked about this story multiple times. I'm, I'm always bothered by it, but there's plenty of stories like that. How is Lot called a, a righteous man after what he does in, in Sodom and Gomorrah and with his daughters, incest and offering his, how is he the righteous man? We look at, you know, Solomon and we almost just kind of shrug our shoulders. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, Solomon, aren't we glad we, we you know, Solomon gets to teach us every Sunday or every time we open up our Bibles and read Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. And he was committing adultery at a record pace. But we always like, well, that was back then. It doesn't really count. Well, so we make a million excuses to to ignore it. Instead of just realizing this Bible is filled with stories of people who are just as messed up as everyone else. And that even with our structures of biblical morality, right, which we want to hold to, we want to do what the Bible says. We have to realize that even the people of the book, the people of, of who are uh, Christians, people who are followers of Christ, because of our sinful natures, we do horrible, 
despicable things. Because our sinful nature is present until glorification. It's not eradicated in salvation. We are justified, not by an imputed righteousness, not by an infused righteousness, I should say. We are justified by an imputed righteousness. I was getting distracted by all the sirens in the background. So there you have it. Again, I, you should go listen to that sermon for yourself. It's The God Who Sees. You can find it on the Sermons 2.0 app. And uh, there's lots of good things there. But when he basically threw Hagar into the mix as being just as responsible as the other two, I was dumbfounded by it. Now, you may agree. That's perfectly okay. But for me, I think the story is a story of sexual abuse, assault, rape, Abuse, victim blaming. I mean, it's just the whole thing is horrific. It's horrific. There's plenty of articles written about this story. Plenty of academic things have been written about it because lots of people have struggled with it. But sometimes when we get to church, instead of embracing the difficulty, we go for a morality tale. Oh, here's some, here's three nice little points to take from this horrific story. So you can tell me what you think. You can email me newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Thank you for your patience and allowing me to struggle through this with you. Now, I know I did not give you any definitive answers, but I've presented the text to you. And that's what we should always do. Be willing to face the text, no matter how uncomfortable it may be, and look to it for what it says. And you know what it shows me? God's people have always been sinners, and we always will be sinners. doesn't excuse our sin. We should fight and strive against it. But until we face that fact, I think all then we do is become, well, self-righteous Pharisees. What we have to realize is we can cover ourselves with fig leaves and robes of self-righteousness, but we're sinners, and our only hope is an imputed righteousness. And unfortunately, even though we are saved by that imputed righteousness, we still have the sin, sin nature there and we're still sinners. And sin shows up in the church just like it shows up in the world. And it shows up in my life and it shows up in your life. We don't excuse that. But we have to have a better understanding of it. And this story, wow, what a messed up story. Thanks for listening. Again, email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Have a great Saturday, December the 23rd. Yes, we want to focus on the first and second coming of Christ, and hopefully you'll spend some time doing that between now and Christmas night. Thanks for listening. God bless.